is not coming in ways that can be observed. Nor will they say, look, here it is, or there. For behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. Let's pray. Lord God, our Father, we pray that you would open your word to us today. That you would allow us to see great things in it. That you would work by your spirit within us, Lord God, to commune with you through our minds and through our hearts. That you would lift us up and encourage us so that we might go forth into the world, Lord God, and be a witness for you. We thank you for these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. So, as you know, tonight we're having the common service, the joint service with other churches of the same kind. We've been going through the Sermon on the Mount, and the Sermon on the Mount is Jesus codifying the relationship of the church through history. It really is. There were many misunderstandings that the Jewish people had in regard to the law, in regard to the Ten Commandments. And he responds to these in many different ways through the text of Scripture. There's one time when he gets really mad, right? And he says, you Pharisees, you travel over land and sea to win a single convert. But when you do, you make him twice as much of a son of hell as you are. That's not nice language. And then he says, you know what? You, you tithe and you even tithe your mint, your dill, and your cumin. In other words, like everybody would have like their herb box outside their window, right? And when their mint leaves would come up that they would put in their food, they would take 10% of their mint leaves and take them to the temple as an offering. But, he said, they overlooked the weightier things of the law, love, mercy, compassion. And so he was teaching them this thing about going all the way down into the heart to understand right and wrong and good and evil, not as mere externalities or things you do on the outside, but things that demand a renewal or a change on the inside. Even in John chapter 3, the famous college football verse, John 3.16, right? That's the context for Jesus' great teaching on the fact that we must be born again. And when he said this to them, even some of the great teachers of the place and time where he was came to him and they tried to make fun of Jesus. They said, can a man be crawl back into his mother's womb to be born again? And he said, you're a teacher of Israel and you don't know this? I tell you the truth, a man has to be born twice, once of water. He's born once of his mother and then again, he has to be born of the spirit, of the spirit of God. He has to be born once of the earth and once from above. And we call that being born again, right? And there are other things that he gets into in the text that sweep through history and change the entire context for Western civilization and will eventually change the entire world. One of the most important being how we think of each other, that we think of each other as being created in the image and likeness of God. Another in how we treat each other, that we treat each other with love and compassion, acting toward others as we would like to be acted towards ourselves. But greatest of all is the context for our entire being, that our being is in and through Christ as the chosen one of God called for that particular purpose for our salvation, so that if we believe in him, we never die but have everlasting life. Amen? And so today we are going to be talking about some distinctive things of this denominational background. And there's a reason why. You should never go to a church that doesn't know exactly who they are. It's very important. Now I know that just about everybody here comes from a different theological or church background. As do I, quite frankly. I come from a bunch of them. I've been with the Pentecostals. I've been with the Baptists. I've been with the Anglicans. I've been, with, I've been around. I didn't end up with the Presbyterians by accident. 
I ended up here on purpose. I really did. Because in my studies and my learning of theology through an entire lifetime, I came closer and closer to what I thought was the best fit for what the Bible was teaching. And really in this life, you're kind of going for the best fit. You're not going for the one perfect church. If you grew up in a tradition that said they're the one perfect church, by definition they're not. Right? Because the church is by God's ordination. God made the church. He really did. And he made it to be a fallible instrument run by fallible people for a perfect purpose. And that's what's hard for us. There is a church that teaches, and as a matter of fact, several, that say there's no salvation outside their own institutional church because they are the perfect church on earth, which is laughable, for goodness sake. Haven't you met anybody? I mean, can't you ask your wife whether or not you're perfect? She'll tell you. It's hard for us to think in terms of the fact that there is no one perfect church and there are no perfect people on earth, but that God did design the institution of the church for the salvation of those who don't know Christ and for the well-being and maintenance of those within Christ. When you look at the people on your left and your right, they were put there by God for a purpose. I don't know if you've ever seen a church split. One of the things I used to do in another uh, denomination is they would send me around to help churches come together a little bit when they were having trouble. And almost all of the time, the different troubles that churches had had nothing to do with theology or heresy or anything like that. It was all when the people started to fight. It was all personality. It was never theology. So when we grow up and we go through churches and with things like that, sometimes we see things that are ugly, and sometimes we see people that are hard. That's not part of God's design for the church, but we're going to go over some of the ways that he gave us in Scripture to work those things out. So the church is definitely something that God said, you guys need to do this. And sometimes we say, why? Why like this? And he said, it's for your own good. God didn't design the church for his well-being. He designed it for ours. Just like the laws, right? Do you really think God needs a law against murder? He doesn't really need one. He could really justifiably take any of us out at any time, couldn't he? But we need one, right? You shall not murder because to murder is to take the life of someone created in the image and likeness of God. And we need a law thou shalt not steal. And we need a law thou shalt not lie, right? But he didn't make them for his own well-being. He made them for us. And it's the same with the church. So I'm going to take you to a little bit of a strange context for this verse. We're going to go all the way back to Genesis 17. Now, as far as books of importance in the Bible, it's hard to get better than Genesis. That's where Adam is, that's where Noah is, that's where Abraham is, that's where Isaac is, that's where Jacob is, that's where the 12 tribes of Israel are. A lot happens in Genesis, and it happens pretty early. And so, after the fall, 17 chapters later, God is going to call together a people for himself. He's always had people here and there that knew him and such, but he's got a plan. And the plan is he's going to bring forth the Messiah, the eternal son of God, is going to become a worldly son of God and come into the world and be born of a virgin to seek and to save those who were lost. And he's going to come into the world specifically to die for the sins of all who believe in him. But first, God's going to call a people to himself. 
And he's going to do a couple things that he always does. He's going to make a sign for them to set them apart from the people around them. He's going to give them an ethics and a law so they'll know right from wrong and good from evil. But also he's going to give them something to believe about the coming of the future. So when Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. So this is one of the distinctives about this theology of the Reformation. How many of you know the actual title of this denomination? I know all the elders and everybody does, but really, how many of you? Not too many. Okay. I, I hate to give it, you know, have to stand up here and do the dictionary for you, but Associate Reformed Presbyterian Church. The Associate Reformed Presbyterian Church. That's the title, right? It's like, wow, that's inordinately long and a little bit confusing. There are reasons, right? Every church is named after some event in history. There was something that was going on at that time that was so important to people that they named the denomination after it. At this time in history, 500 years ago, the Reformation happened, right? Martin Luther and John Calvin and all the great reformers stood up and they stood up with their Bibles and they said, this is the basis of our religion, not human tradition, not human decisions. We have an infallible church. We have an infallible Bible. The Bible alone, Christ alone, faith alone, grace alone. These are our standards. And so when we say associate reformed, reform just refers to the Reformation, right? Associate means this church is not independent. There are other churches that we are in direct relation to. I know that a lot of people have this thing about being anti-denominational. As far as my understanding goes, every anti-denominational church is actually part of a denomination. Every non-denominational church is a denomination in itself. It's just a corporate structure and not an ecclesial structure. What I mean by that is somebody owns it. Somebody's got a title to it, and they've got a contract where their name is written on it, and they can fire any church in the denomination, and I've seen it happen a hundred times. You guys have heard about these things happening, where there's a church, and they're going along, and somebody outside the church actually owns it and everything that happens in it, and they file a paper in court, and they take the church from the people. That kind of thing happens. That's a corporate structure, not an ecclesial structure. So associated means we're not independent, we're not alone. There's other churches that have, this will make you uncomfortable, authority over us, right? And in a way, we have authority over them. And all of the pastors in the denomination have an actual accountability to each other for what we teach and what we say. We're not alone, we're not independent. We might even think that in some places in the Bible, it implies that being alone and independent is kind of inherently problematic. We need each other. We don't just need each other in this church. We need each other outside this building too. Hypothetically, with all the Christians in the world, we need every other Christian in the world. But it's kind of hard to manage that. Do you believe that one day there will be one denomination on earth? I believe there will when Christ comes back, right? On, in heaven as on earth, right? Thy will be done. When we get into this, there's also associate means just connected with other churches because there was a time when if you were going down the street, this was hundreds of years ago, so you would have been probably riding your horse or in your carriage, right? And you saw a sign on a church and it didn't say associate or something, you'd go right past. 
because people did not trust churches that weren't associated in some way with other churches. It was considered morally problematic. Reformed means coming from the Reformation. That basically meant we ain't Catholic, right? That's simple. That's simple. Presbyterian, we're going to talk a little about today because they, at the time, just about everybody in the United States, even if the name of their church was Methodist or something like that, all of the churches were Presbyterian. What Presbyterian means is basically two things. Number one, you elect your leadership from the church. That you'll never show up here and there will be a new pastor in the pulpit that you've never met. This happens in denominations a lot, right? You choose your leaders. And we'll read a couple verses. Why? Because that's what they did in the Bible. Number two is there's a form and order of church government that you can know that protects you from fraud and spiritual and personal abuse, from sin. There's an actual system in the Bible for it. And people looked for that in foregone days. We've talked many times about the fact that the Southern Baptist Conference is rapidly becoming Presbyterian in their entire form of church government. And that's a good thing, right? Because we're like this now, but we're like inches apart on most things, you know? So Presbyterian and a church, it is a church. This church is not the only one. There are others, and they are part of this church. There are other denominations that are actually, by contract, related to this church. It's like a marriage between the churches. I know we don't usually think of marriage as a contract, but you do stand up in a church and you make vows and they make vows and there's witnesses there and you sign a contract with the state that you're married and now your property is held in common, right? And your children bear both your DNA and your names and your faces. You are really related to other people and other churches. We are not alone. One of the reasons is because of what this says about a covenant. Remember, God is going to bless Abraham, and he's going to make his descendants as numerous as the stars of heaven. And what we see in the witness of the New Testament is that does not mean just his physical offspring. <clears throat> that means his <clears throat> spiritual offspring. So everyone in here is a member of this covenant and a descendant of Abraham through faith. We are the children of the promise. We are part of the covenant of God with his people. He says, behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. Not only his own descendants, but a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham. For I have made you the father of a multitude of nations, and I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession. And I will be their God. And God said to Abram, as for you, you shall keep my covenant and your offspring after you throughout all their generations. This is my covenant, which you shall keep. In other words, this is the sign of that covenant. Between me and you and your offspring after you, every male among you shall be circumcised. I know it's the worst thing ever to bring up a verse on circumcision because it's such a confusing subject, but that was the sign that God chose, a bloody sign of the cutting of the skin that left a scar and it would be an implement upon the person for the rest of their life. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. The focus upon this thing is sometimes called 
covenant theology. How many of you heard of covenant theology? Covenant theology means that the main way that churches of this kind interpret the text is through the nature of the covenant and the joining between God and the person through that covenant of faith and grace. Then he goes on in verse 12 to say, He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male throughout your generations, whether born in your house or bought with money from, a, from any foreigner who is not of your offspring. In other words, they included people that were not of genetic offspring. Both he who is born in your house and he who is bought with money shall surely be circumcised. So shall my covenant be in your flesh, an everlasting covenant. Any circumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. And God said to Abraham, as for Sarai, your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, but her name shall be Sarah. And I will bless her. Moreover, I will give her a son by her. I will bless her and she will become nations. And so the women were included in the covenantal nature of the, the sacrament. Down to verse 22. When he had finished talking with him, God went up from Abraham. And Abraham took Ishmael, his son, and all those born in his house or bought with his money, every male among them from Abraham's house, he circumcised the flesh of their foreskins that very day. As God had said to him, Abraham was 99 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. And Ishmael, his son, was 13 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. That very day, Abraham and his son Ishmael were circumcised, and all the men of his house, those born in his house, those bought with money from a stranger, were circumcised with him. Now, one of the interesting things is here, this is just about the last time in the Bible that any adult is circumcised. For a thousand years, you get about three instances in the entire Old Testament when any adult gets circumcised. They had to be an adult foreign convert. Everybody was a child. And so their focus was inordinately, maybe, upon children and the inclusion of family. When somebody was born to you, they were holy. They were holy to God, and they were holy to you, and so God had the children receive the sign of the covenant. Their entire psychology was around the children receiving the sign of the covenant and coming down through history as being a part of the people of God. Do you see that? So when they thought about who was in the covenant, they thought about born to somebody in the covenant and having the sign of the covenant. Let's look at the book of Acts. Chapter 2. From verse 37, now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. Chapter 2 of the book, book of Acts, verse 37. And said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? Because they had just heard the gospel. And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. One of the biggest things that they would want to know, that the Jewish person hearing this gospel for the first time in Acts would want to know is what are we supposed to do with our children? 
Because the nature of the sacramental system of Israel was always about the children, never about the adults. What did the adults have to do in this? They went to prayer, they brought sacrifices, but they were already included in this body of people called the church. And they already had the sign of that relationship with the people through faith. That's why he says here, the promise is for you and for your children. He doesn't exclude them from that. Let's take a short look at chapter 6 of the book of Acts. This is getting down to the issue of system. Now, in the days when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up the preaching of the word to serve on tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among yourselves seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, and we will appoint them to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenius, and Nicholas, and the proselyte from Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. So notice one of the norms of scripture that comes up again and again is who chose the people? Who chose the leaders? I know the apostles told them to choose them, but they chose them. They chose from among themselves men full of the Holy Spirit. And the church grew specifically because the people that were chosen came out of the body of believers. The idea that people can just hire or that you hire a specific group that will come in and bring you your pastors or your ministers or your elders and they will rule you seems wholly inadequate to the proper interpretation of this text. Let's move to chapter 15 of the book of Acts. And I know this is not the usual type of sermon that I give. I'm acutely aware of that. <laughs> But sometimes we have to dig down into the text and answer some issues that are on people's minds. And I know from my conversations with you, which I have every day in this church, every day of the week, these are some of the burning questions. Are we a part of this tradition for a reason or just by accident? Is this just the church we attend? Or is this church really relevant to what's going on in the world through history? Paul and Barnabas had some trouble in Antioch in Syria. In verse 1 of chapter 15, but some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you're circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Now that, of course, was false. That's why they're responding to this. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small discussions and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. So they were sent from the local church to the regional church. This is the way that they handled this issue. One of the things you have to remember is if there were no regional church, they wouldn't have been able to do this, right? It presumes a lot about the nature of the church. We all know the difference between an explicit teaching of Scripture and an implicit teaching of Scripture. An explicit teaching is one that says something quite plainly, do this, don't do that. An implicit teaching is that there are things that exist in Scripture that we need to recognize exist. One thing that exists in Scripture is the form and the nature of the church. There's no more common teaching sweeping through the churches today, especially for young people, than the non-existence of the church in history. That really we shouldn't be going to churches or having buildings or things like that. We should just be at home. 
or perhaps in our house, and we'll just have church there. That wasn't what happened here. This isn't what happened with Paul. And they were sent to a very specific group of people. They were sent to the church, they were sent to the elders, and they were sent to the apostles or the teachers and preachers. So these distinctions between pastors, elders, and the people of the church and deacons is something that we find all through scripture. It is a real thing. This is what they did. When we try to do this, it's because they did this in the Bible. We're not making this up and then bringing it to the people. We didn't just come about doing all of this by accident. It's by ordination. We really have to decide, are we going to do these things the way they happened in the Bible, or are we going to make up a new system that we think we like better? We all have to make those decisions. From verse 6, the apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider the matter. And after there had been much debate, Peter, now I know that many of us have been taught that Peter is the first pope and he had authority over all of them, but we don't see that in this text. We say him making his best argument just like the rest of them, right? Peter stood up and said to them, brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither are our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we are saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, just as they will. So not only does he reaffirm the gospel and the purity of the gospel, he subjects his argument to others around him that are of equal authority and status. In other words, there's no one person that runs a church. There really is not. There might be one person with special gifts or special abilities of teaching and preaching, right? But he's actually equal with the other people of the church. Peter has to make his best argument, and they actually don't have to buy it. Because remember, Peter messed up a lot in the Bible. <laughs> he was not always right about everything. And all the assembly fell silent. And they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. And after they finished speaking, James replied, Brother, brothers, listen to me. Simeon has related how God visited the Gentiles and take from them a people for his name. And with the words of the prophets... We agree, just as it was written, after this I will return, and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins, and I will restore it, that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord, and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord who makes these things known from old. Therefore, my judgment is. And then he tells what his judgment is, right? But here... What he uses as the argument is that all of us Gentiles are now included in the tent of David. Not even Abraham, but the tent of David. The same God that he prayed to and the same God that he believed in is the same God that we believe in. And we're included in that household by faith, by adoption, but no less really. Okay, Colossians chapter 1. From verse 8, Colossians chapter 1 from verse 8. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition. So one of the things that we do in this tradition is we eschew tradition. Now, not all tradition. Everybody's got a tradition, right? There are some things you have to do by tradition. But we're very careful to not let any tradition happen in a church like this that gets between us and the Bible as the word of God, right? 
So if there's anything that somebody made up that's not written in a verse in this book, we will not do it in the worship service. Those are the standards that have been around for these hundreds and hundreds of years. In this, you know, tradition has its place. There are all kinds of traditions. At this church, we have a fellowship meal, right? It's a tradition. It's not in the Bible. It's a tradition, right? It's a good tradition. It's a wholesome tradition. But we never let anything that is tradition or made up by men start to supplant the word of God. There are entire churches that almost everything that happens in their service is tradition and not the word of God. I mean, come on, let's just think reasonably about this. All the churches disagree, right? And all of them think they're right. Do you think that all of them are true churches of Christ? Every church out there? Really? Every one of them? Do you know what bad things happen at some places, right? Here's the genius of Protestantism. That we can say that any church that preaches the gospel of Jesus Christ is a true church, right? There's a few different things that we say has to be at a true church. The true preaching and teaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the right administration of the sacraments, and the exercise of church discipline. And if those three aren't there, we should be very slow to call it a church, right? There are some churches that long ago gave up this book as having anything relevant to say about their faith and practice. Why do I say this to you? Because it's a warning. It's an admonition. Don't think lightly of the things that are in here. They're deep and they're rich, but they also have salvation for your soul so that you will survive the end of this life. That's why he says here, see to it that no one takes you captive. How are they going to take you captive? By philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world and not according to Christ. For in him the whole fullness of the deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. How? Having been buried with him in baptism, in which you also were raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And this is one of the many places in Scripture where it sets up a hard and explicit and not an implicit alignment between circumcision as the old sign of the covenant and baptism as the new sign of the covenant. What did he earlier tell people to do? He told them, repent and be baptized, because this is the sign of inclusion in God's people, right? We've all heard the argument about the thief on the cross, right? Jesus is crucified. There's two thieves there. They're both being crucified. One still has the temerity to mock Jesus, even while he's about to die, right? And the other one believes in Jesus, right? And Jesus says to him, I tell you the truth, this day you will be with me in paradise. And a lot of people have brought up that if baptism is necessary for salvation then how could that guy go to paradise? Did he have time to get baptized? No, he did not. What we remember about baptism is the same thing we remember about circumcision. It does not convey or confer salvation on anybody. It is a mere external sign of what we hope is an invisible reality going on inside the person. Our baptismal water doesn't have any special grace in it, doesn't have any superpowers, won't give you x-ray vision, won't make you able to fly, won't give you super strength. It's water. But God respects his sacrament in such a way as that he often sets up an alignment between the external sign 
and the invisible thing that he's doing in the heart. Remember, there's also a set of verses that says the people of the Old Covenant, when they came out of Egypt and they walked through the Red Sea with walls of water on each side before the cloud, he said they were baptized by the cloud and the sea. He marked them as separate and distinct to himself by the mere action of going through the formal process of leaving. One more verse here. I know it's a lot. I'm not sorry, but... 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Now, one of the things that's most confusing to people about a church like this is that the children are members of the church. They're not partial members. They're not a little bit members. They're not kind of members. They are full members of the church. And they're members by birthright, which means if you have a kid, they're a member of the church. And it's confusing because most of us have grown up in traditions where they don't get to be members until they're an adult or reach some kind of a supposed adult-level understanding. A lot of this comes from that verse that we read about Ishmael, that he didn't get circumcised until he was 13. So they say around 13 is when a person can get baptized. The thing about that is, that's Ishmael, for goodness sake. That's not the child of the promise. That's the child of his flesh. When we come to this, there's a concession, there's a demand. Verse 14, the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. There are many verses like this in the Bible that say that the child, the offspring of a believer, is holy to God by reference to their relationship with God. They are born holy, and holy means holy. I know you might have read some commentaries that say, well, holy doesn't mean holy there. Well, what, what in the world does holy mean there? It means the same thing it means everywhere else in the Bible. It means separate, distinct, chosen by God, called by God. It means a lot of things, but I'll tell you what it doesn't mean. It doesn't mean unholy, right? Your children are holy. And so, in a church of this kind, the children are raised in the fear and admonition of the Lord so that if they profess faith, we have the presumption that they have faith. So, it's, it's kind of weird to people sometimes that we raise our children as Christian children, and if someday, when they're older, they deny it and they walk away, then we know they weren't. But in most churches, children are always presumed to be unbelievers until they reach adult status. And in this church, children, your children would be presumed to be believers until we know different. You see the difference of orientation? Some people have called churches like this an integrated church, a child integrated church, family integrated. And it's not really that it's that. That's just a new name for something that Presbyterians have been doing for 500 years, which is that your children do not have a choice whether or not to be a Christian. They are your children. You raise your Christian children as Christians, Right? And when they're old, they will not depart from it, right? We raise our children and we fill them with faith and life and hope and love and we teach them the scriptures. And as they bathe in these things, as they're in their minds and in their hearts, we also pray that God will fill them with his spirit so that they will know the true and living God and live forever with him. There is no greater thing that we have that we want for our children than that they share our faith more than that they share our intellect, 
more than that we share, they share our virtue, more than that they share in our riches or our wealth or our property. It's that they share our faith, and God knows that. He knows that. So at a church like this, we kind of expect that God will do things a little bit differently, but also we will do things differently in regard to the children. The primary ministry of any church in the gospel of Jesus Christ is the children. That's very different from a lot of traditions that you've come in, in which the children are the last to show up. As a matter of fact, we're going to set up a different service for them in a different room so that they can jump around and have fun while we're doing real church, right? It was just a few years ago when we went to visit my mother in Albuquerque and we went to a church and they came to us three times and asked us to take our children out of the service. My children were being as silent as a church mouse. They just didn't have any kids in the service. There were 500 people in the church. They wanted them excluded and separated, right? I don't want that kind of holy for my children. So I know this is a lot, but, you know, we're, people keep asking me about these things. It's good to talk about it within the context of a service. I am, of course, available to you any time to get together and talk about these things. But the idea of being in covenant with God so that you can know you are saved in a Christian and not just think you have faith as an independent out there in the world wandering and sojourning. The issue of Presbyterianism is that you choose your own elders and deacons and pastor, and also this church is accountable to other churches outside of itself. And, of course, the status of children is... One day they will become a communing member, which means they get to take the Lord's Supper, right? And that is an added duty and benefit, but they are not a distinct kind or class of member. If your tiny child says, I believe in Jesus, and they pray the prayers with you, that is real prayer, and it pleases God. And so the presumption that they're not Christians just seem, doesn't, doesn't seem to have any place in Scripture. So I know that the transition of having very few or no kids in the service to having a bunch of kids in the service has been a bit of an issue for you guys, but I think you've handled it extraordinarily well. I really do. It's noisier. There's a lot of wiggling going on in the back row. That is the music of the church, and it is beautiful. It's beautiful. Embrace it. Don't hide from it. My prayer for this church is that God will fill it with children. Just fill it. And do you know how uncomfortable that's going to get for you? Praise God it's going to get uncomfortable for you. Right? Let's pray. Lord, our Father.